0: On Arts Tonight, now the first in a new series. Vincent Woods is in conversation with Conor McPherson, whose play, The Night Alive, has just had its Dublin premiere and is currently running in the Gaiety Theatre as part of the 2015 Dublin Theatre Festival. This programme, also part of the festival, was recorded in the Project Arts Centre last weekend.
1: Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight on this edition of the programme playwright Conor McPherson at this year's Dublin Theatre Festival to coincide with the Irish premiere of his play Night Alive at the Gaiety Theatre
2: what kind of a person do you think I am? Of course, I'm going to pay you. Look, and just to show you, there's no hard feelings. You know what I'm going to do? Ah, Tommy, not the cigars. I don't know. Do you know how much these cigars retail for in all their fancy shops down the town? Seven, seven euros, euros each. Yeah, bang on, seven euros. Now, do come on, do the maths. Go on, do it. Come on. Yeah. Come on now. There's 20 cigars in each of these boxes. How much is that? Yeah. 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 Come on. Sixty cigars straight retail. Yeah. Yeah. It's... What is it? What? Seven by 20 by three. Come on. Yeah. Uh huh. What is it? Yeah. That's it. Yeah, 120 three. Yeah, carry the one. Yeah, I am. Yeah, how much is it? Yeah, 420 euros. Yeah, and that's no overheads, no tax. You know, uh, that's just you just walk into Joyce's Lounge any night of the week and it's a euro a piece, two euros a pop. Before you know it, you've doubled your money because, because why? Yeah, because that's... You're a good businessman. That's why. Or are you not a good businessman? No, I am a good businessman. Yeah, well, there you go, you see. And see, see that... That's all the profit you make on that, that's all yours. I'm not going to take a cent off you now, come yeah, on. but you know these are all out of date. In what sense? The date on the box. Ah, don't mind that, cigars never go out with they. They do, they dry out.
3: Yeah, but that only makes them easier to lie. Everybody says that. Yeah, well listen, thanks Tommy, but I can't sell them in Joyce's, so... Why not? Because the new lad who works on the door won't let me in anymore. Why? He says I'm not a regular. But you are a regular, you're very regular. Well, that's what I said, but he said it doesn't matter how regular I say I am, I'm not as regular as the other regulars.
2: Why not? You are regular. Well, the other
3: regulars are more regular, and he says it doesn't matter how regular you ever become, I'll never be as regular or regular as the other regulars, because they're just way more, um, They're just way more, um, Frequent?
2: Yeah.
1: And it's a great pleasure for me to be here today with connor who as you know has given us haunting and memorable characters stories and landscapes he carries dublin and ireland to the world and a world to our lives here and always with this unique twist of humor and the most perfectly pitched dialogue and voice, Adrian Dunbar and Lawrence Kinlan there in The Night is Alive with Conor McPherson. Uh, Conor, can we begin with the play of the moment, The Night Alive at the Gaiety as part of, of this year's Dublin Theatre Festival. And no more than once coming home to Dublin, this is something of a homecoming after London and New York. Tell me first, what sparked or inspired The Night Alive?
0: Usually plays are a confluence of probably two things. So you usually get like a kind of, uh, first of all, just an image or a kind of a feeling, which in a rather uh, unimaginative way, it's usually just a picture of a room. That's usually what I see. And then there's usually one or two people there. I think you can always see my plays sort of being written when you're watching them on stage. Like one person comes on and then someone else comes on and then they start talking and then someone else, you know what I mean? So it usually starts in a very simple little way, but the, what you need when you see that little image first is um, for some reason it will just compel you and you feel this could be an idea for a play. That's kind of inexplicable, really. Um, so the first image I had was just a man bringing a, a girl into a very cluttered room. It felt to me a little bit like Harold Pinter's play The Caretaker in a funny way um, when I was thinking about the, the initial image of it. So the other thing was that in the year or two before that, I had done a, a translation of August Strindberg's play, The Dance of Death, mm. for a little studio production at the, the Darmar in London at the Trafalgar Studios. And uh, I was struck by the incredible freedom of Strindberg's power as a playwright and struck by his theories about drama and how, how so much of 20th 20 and 21st 20 century drama has flowed from from his work. He had this uh, strong idea that consistency in plays is is deadening and that essentially if you look at a play like Miss Julie, it's only, you know, it's mostly two people for the whole play. As far as he was concerned, all that kind of happens in the play is that every two pages, the play just keeps reversing on itself so that she's in charge and has all the power, and then he suddenly has all the power, then she's in love with him, but he isn't in love with her, but then he's in love with her and she isn't in love with him. And this just keeps happening all through the... In a sense, that's all that happens until it sort of stops. And yet, he said that this kind of contradiction and, you know, inconsistency is actually the stuff of life. He felt that this is what feels real. And he said the more consistent things are and the more logical arcs are in stories, he felt the more unreal it was. So the more crazy it is, he felt the better. And so when I was approaching this play, I felt that I wanted not only for this to sort of come in through the characters, but also I wanted the actual character of the play itself to do that. I wanted the play to have very strong abrupt tonal changes all the way through so at one point you think you're sort of watching this comedy which sort of borders on the so light and stupid that it's 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 kind of bad you know then it moves into you know something much darker and heavier and brutally uh, viscerally violent then moves on into something more crazy quest for you know is love real and what does it mean and all of that, and then on into sort of, you know, is there a God, do you know what I mean? So I felt that if I could keep it pounding along within this story, it was a way to sort of hook the audience and to keep us kind of just cooking in this cauldron of, of bizarre emotional turmoil. So it was a confluence of those two main strands. Was
1: it a fast play to write once you got going?
0: Um, a play usually shouldn't take too long. I think, you know, any play that I've done which takes a long time is usually not very good. Sebastian Barry said to me one time, he said a play should take two weeks. For one week for the first act and one week for the second act. And <laughs> there's something sort of in that, you know. Plays have to be kind of quite simple, really. They need a kind of a, a good bang of stuff happening and um, not don't think about it too much, I guess. But for me, I tend to sort of... I'll do a little bit and then I'll stop and then I'll do a little bit more and I'll stop. and do, I tend to do it in little short bursts like that. So where each time I come to it, there's a sort of a fresh energy coming at it as opposed to uh, something that's too polite or sedate. I like it to be a little bit like on a rocky ship. you know. <laughs> from start to finish, it probably took about eight or nine months altogether. That's probably right in three drafts. Mm.
1: And it, of course, you directed the original production at the Donmore in London uh, in June 2013, that transferring to New York, and you've directed this new production between the Lyric and Dublin Theatre Festival at the Gaiety. Were you almost consciously working with a director's eye as you wrote?
0: Yes, in the sense that you can, I think when you, if you know you're probably going to direct it, you feel you don't have to answer a lot of the questions in the play because you know that once it gets into three dimensions, it takes on a whole other life and that's going to take care of a lot of the unanswered stuff. If you feel you have to hand it over to a director, you may have to be a lot more careful. I felt I didn't have to be particularly, because I knew that once we were in the room, if anything was going terribly wrong, we could fix it quite quickly. So it allows you to be quite sort of brave, not explain anything, just keep it moving, keep it going. So in that sense, I knew that it it just gives you that, that freedom to finish the play in the rehearsal room, but also at the same time, every time I would come back to a play, because if it's, say, different actors, it's a, to me it's kind of a different play. It's the same kind of play, but different actors will bring a different dynamic because of who they are as people, and so the characters subtly change and the dynamic subtly changes, and I'm not someone, I won't fight that. I'll move into that and I'll start to even rewrite the play around what suits that so that hopefully there's a sense of truthfulness, no matter how sparmy it is, flowing from those actors, uh, which is very unmediated.
1: Uh, wonderful performances in this production. Uh, Adrian Dunbar as Tommy, Lawrence Kinnlund as Doc, um, all of them, and, and we'd hear a, a few extracts from the play in the course of this conversation, but at times I was reminded of O'Casey, I suppose Dublin, and Dublin almost as a character uh, within the play, and that's frequent in your work anyway, but also uh, this marvellous scene towards the end of the play where um, Doc, who's a bit of a seer, is talking about time, and dreams uh, with Tommy. And we might hear that short extract with Adrian Dunbar as Tommy and Lawrence Kinnan as Doc.
3: Will I tell you the good thing about Christmas? Yeah. No one can turn you away. You see that light on in the window and in you go.
2: Yeah. But you can't save everybody, can you? Yeah, I suppose. Mm.
3: Do you know what a black hole is?
2: A what? A black
3: hole. What, like in space? Yeah, do you know what it is? Oh, yeah. Uh, what is it? No, I had this dream before I woke. I had to write it down. you all right? Yeah, no, I woke up and there was an old chap sitting there. And do you know who he was? Who? Yeah. He was one of the three wise men. Well, he told you that? No, do you know, the way you just know. Oh, ah, OK. <laughs> yeah, he was sitting there and he was looking out the door there up into the sky. And I sat up in the camp bed and he saw me. And he said that when a star dies, OK, it collapses into itself and its gravity becomes an unbelievable force that not even light can escape it. He said that's why it's called a black hole. And he said that the faster you travel, the slower time goes. And he said that if you ever came near a black hole, you'd be sucked in so fast, faster and faster and faster. The time would slow down so slowly and it would take you so long to reach the heart of the dying star that you would never actually arrive. Because at that speed, time itself becomes meaningless. So a black hole is a place, he said, where there's no time. And he said that all the stars in our galaxy and all our sun and all, everything is just spinning around and around a black hole. And he said that when you consider this fact, we are all just going around and around a place where there's no time. How can any man say there's no God? I had to write it down.
2: Oh, that is one heavy fucking
1: dream right there. (laughs) Adrian Dunbar and Lawrence Kinlan there in The Night is Alive by Conor McPherson. Conor, that is almost like a variation on what is the stars, uh, <laughs> only going in a bit further. That, that juxtaposition you talk about, we hear it there, of comedy and then this deep search for meaning is something you do and you seem to find a balance. It seems quite naturally. I'm sure that it takes a lot of work and thought and hammering at it to, to fine tune that?
0: I suppose, I think when I, was, um, when I was young and I studied philosophy, probably even before that, when I was a kid, I always had like a real interest in ghosts and you know vampires and all that kind of stuff. I think for me, I always sort of felt that life and just being alive and all that was very strange, mysterious. I always knew that nobody had the answers. I always knew that it doesn't, you only have to ask the question why about three or four times before any expert is finished. And like, if that's what we live in, then to me, it seems like we do live within a mystery. We live within a supernatural experience. And um, that's real. For me, there is no difference between the supernatural and the natural. To me, it's all magic, but I don't know what it is. But unless you acknowledge that, I think you probably are not fully awake.
1: There's a quote from uh, Matthew's Gospel, which you use as an epigraph uh, for the published text. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. They went into the house and they saw Mary and her child. And falling to their knees, they offered gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Why Matthew's Gospel and those lines, that image?
0: Well, another thing about this play for me is, I know this sounds mad, but for me, it's a nativity play. I think we have uh, Tommy and Doc and Morris are these sort of the three magi. And I think there's a sense of Amy and this other character, Kenneth, to me, are sort of Mary and Joseph who are lost and need shelter. And it's, um, (laughs) you know, and there's also a, a sort of a child out there that's sort of the... For me, I think the nativity story um, is a beautiful story. I think it's imbued with such, I don't know, heavy meaning. And I guess it's like, you know, the hope for the future and the child and all that. I mean, I don't know if there's a God or if Jesus Christ was real or anything like that. But certainly the story itself, even in just a very basic pagan way, even if all you want to worship is the changing of the seasons, you know, for me, I would always it would always stop and make me catch my breath, you know, so... And I suppose as a child, in one way, I suppose I was grateful to be given religion so that then I could turn around and say, well, I don't know if that means anything, but in the sense of still, as a child, I suppose being taught to believe those things, I suppose you do sort of believe them for a while. So I don't think it's a bad thing to have experienced belief. Um, I'm not sure that I'm, you know, I believe any of that stuff anymore, but I do believe that we're, there's something very mysterious about being here. Also, as well, like I mean, I have to say, for me, the theatre is a sort of a holy place. You know, I think that when we go in and we all sit in the dark together and we look at the, the sort of the altar and the story which takes place there, you know, religions have what's the word? Not subverted, but what's the word when you take something? Subsumed. subsumed. They've subsumed something that's. Very ancient in that public ritual, and I think that we go into a kind of communal trance and what the what the play has to do is essentially all it has to do is just not break the trance Now I know that sounds like we 're trying to do something negative, but in fact you just have to be very careful that everything you do just keeps it going and once you do that, I think we actually do reach a place of transcendence. Um, we do it together, and I think that 's why the theater has survived. I know in my lifetime, people have spoken about i 'm sure in other people before this you know they say. Why have the theatre when you have films and TV and all that? It never goes away. And it's because it does something that other things don't do. And it's a kind of, I think, a quasi-religious feeling. I think you have to be very careful of it and very respectful of it. But at the same time, it does allow you to be incredibly profane. You can be very brutal, very rude, very open and honest. And you can say absolutely anything within that space and it will be received in the right spirit. That's kind of the feelings that I have. I know it all sounds quasi, I don't mean it's religious, but I know there's something going on there, just even maybe on a biological level, which is um, I try to make work with, when we're working with the actors.
1: Well, it's, also, it's a line of life, isn't it? Into the future, you know, and, and at, towards the end, of the, there's the possibility of Tommy's grandchild, of, of, of <laughs> another child coming into the world as well, yes. uh, which is whatever we may think yeah. in our darkest moments, the prospect yeah. of new life yeah. out there. Absolutely. Always holds us.
0: That's right. and I mean, I think with the play too, there's no way the play can logically reach the place that it gets to at the end. How come everything just suddenly comes, comes right? There's absolutely, it's impossible. And yet, as part of a public ritual and we can believe in it, it still takes us to that place. And there's something really fun and anarchic about that and yet at the same time also serious and meaningful. So it's like, uh, to get into that place is it's a real privilege. you know?
1: It's interesting because a few people said to me after seeing the play, it was great, not sure how it ended, you know, what yeah, happened. Yeah. And for me, I suppose that's part of the magic is that there's a, you take your own meaning from it, I think. I wonder if that's what you intended that, that people take away whatever maybe they carry on what they see.
0: that's it. I mean I think that that's a play should always be a question. It should never be an answer. I mean, if it's just an answer, you don't need a play because it's just a statement. so why do you need art? You know So it has to sort of put it out there and say, "Is't this what we want that's all you can that's all you can ask. Maybe the answer is no, <laughs> you know, and you just have to walk away and say, "Well, then we failed, but you know it's like in some way getting to that place but i think for me as well i think the plays when they work it's nothing to do really with the writing it's not to do with the words It's not to do with anything anybody says the play is sort of in between all the lines and it's underneath everything that's happening and it should be affecting the audience and perhaps the actors too on a level which is entirely instinctive and, and almost physical you know for me it's like that's where the play happens when you come out it you sort of, you don't really have to know in a sense what it means. You just feel it and you get it. And it's that feeling that when you come out, you just go, I was there, I was there, and that's what I'm taking with me. That will last. An idea necessarily won't last. If someone says the reason New Labour have betrayed their soul is because they turned their back on the trade unions. I'm not going to carry that to my grave. But if there's a feeling that I had, they I go, I just, I just had this feeling and I just, it's something that I, I think about you will keep coming back to that moment.
1: Music uh, in the play is, is a very strong character too, and at times it, it seems to almost roll time with it. You know, you, you get these shifts of time uh, which are mediated by a very particular soundtrack. Mm. I wonder, were you listening to music as you wrote? Did you carry some of that into the directing and into, into the production?
0: Yeah, well, I listen to music just all the time. And to me, like, almost the play is nearly an excuse to have the music because the music is what sort of, in a sense, just keeps the, the play buoyant and keeps it lifted and takes it deeper. It's a hugely important part of it, you know. And it's also, I think, the play, when you have music like that and also the lighting, which I think is great in the play by Zia Holly and the design by Alison Cummins, it all helps us just to keep flowing through it. That, and it's also saying to the audience, it's okay just to go with this, just keep going with it. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You know, so people will keep going. So that's sort of what it's it's doing.
1: I love the use of, of Dolly Parton's Islands in the Stream as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it, there's a great mix of music in it, which I presume you're fun doing that too
0: well i'm like a music fan like i mean i'd be like you know like anybody i would still sort of be on the lookout for a good pop song all the time because you, you know that those things like where do they come from where does it you know where do hits come from and all of that and uh, yeah it's funny when they just start singing that in the play and the audience just just totally get it you know they're just totally with it and uh it's just a lot of fun
1: uh there's also a a, a wonderful moment uh where three characters uh, amy doc and tommy begin to dance to mm. Marvin Gaye, mm. to what's going on. And inevitably that raised memories of dancing at Lunasa and right. that extraordinary moment where, yeah. the, where the sisters begin to dance. Right. And I, I, I wondered, did you, did you think of that at all, of, of that release that dance can give and, and how, as was, Friel made that so potent?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very tough because Friel has, has got in everywhere before you, you know what I mean? So you just sort of, all you can say is thank you and follow on. But I think like when you talk about Sean O'Casey and stuff like that, like when you see those plays too, the way the play just stops and they kind of have a sing song in June and the yes. Peacock, you know what I mean? I don't know, there's just something about that that's just the dancing. Yes, I suppose, again, it's like the music and the dancing is saying everything that you cannot that they cannot say to each other. So Freela's right about that, like at the end of Dancing at Lunasa, when he explains, you know, as though language was no longer necessary or words are no longer necessary. And um, he's put his finger right on the button there, that public rituals are necessary because words are not never enough. And so, um, yeah, so dancing is, is really is really great.
1: Let's hear another extract from the play, uh, from The Night Alive. And uh, you mentioned there the, the couple who are, you know, in a sense within the nativity story, Kenneth and Amy. and. Uh, Let's hear them here talking about their relationship and a baby. And it's uh, Kate Stanley Brennan as Amy and Ian Lloyd Anderson as Kenneth.
2: What are you doing? Well,
1: there's nobody here.
2: Right, come on. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's that? Three thousand. I oh, don't mind that. You said three thousand. I don't mind what I said. There is no more. That's it. All right. You've made your point. Well, come on, let's go. Not just take it. Do you know what so? It's not even about any of this. It's not about any of that. What's it about? I'm on top of it.
1: What?
2: I'm on top of it. What? I've I've got back up on top of it, alright.
1: What the fuck are you talking about? Do you not want
2: me? Amy, listen. I'm sorry. I'm I'm just sorry. Those people wrote to you. What people? they people. They wrote you a letter. Where is it? I read it for you. What did it say? Uh, it was just all this medical stuff. They'll keep you informed and all this, but they're not going to let you see the little one because they think it'll confuse her because she's too young. She's too young. Do you have it? Yeah. No. Did they say what they'd call her? Let me listen. She's better off, and you're better off, because unfortunately you're not right in the fucking head. You're not right in the fucking head, unfortunately.
1: Come on. Let's go. Ian Lloyd-Anderson as Kenneth and Kate Stanley Brennan as Amy in The Night is Alive by Conor McPherson. Conor, uh, the the character of Kenneth uh, is this very disturbing character uh, who has a, a kind of terrible plausible charm for a while. And it reminded me then later in, in the play, Tommy's uncle Morris says evil has no meaning, which is quite a thought. And, and he also asks, you know, what happened to all that, that sweetness the child used to take for walks? And all of that reminded me of, of something again, you've done in several plays. Um, this, this introduction of an almost palpable sense of what we might call evil for want of of, of a better word. You know, it's in the Weir, it's in St. Nicholas, in the seafarer, it's here. And I remember reading an interview with Hilary Mantel where she talked about how one day in the garden she had a glimpse, a vivid glimpse of an almost physical shape of evil. And she said she has never forgotten that and it has somehow Mm -hmm. driven some of what she has written. I wonder if, if, if you have ever almost caught a glimpse in the glimpses you've talked about in the the making of the plays of something very dark, something, a power of, of darkness beyond
0: us. Well, I don't think we have to look too far to ever see it, you know, and um, that is, for me, the definition of evil is that it, it really has no meaning. There's nothing to be learned from it. There's nothing to be learned from brutality. In fact, it's the end of communication when someone just decides to either kill or hit another person. It is essentially you've reached the end of, of the road. And um, I suppose as well, it's like it's, there's good and evil in all of us. And we all know when we reach the end of our own tether, I suppose we are animals. We have a veneer of reason and uh, we've organized ourselves into society. And it's a kind of, it's amazing what, you know, in many societies we've managed to achieve, but that thing is still there, you know, and um, I guess it only takes, it doesn't it only take a second? For someone to kill another person? They might not mean it, but there's something in them which tells them to do it. And I think the morality in The Night Alive is essentially all Nietzschean. Everything that happens in the play, people do in different levels for their own self-interest. Um, the only consequences of their actions are only to do with the people they're interacting with. There is very little justice in the play in that sense. You know, The morality of the play separate from the spirituality of the play, the morality is pretty stark and it's saying there is none. You know? And what bit we have, we're lucky to experience. We, as people who have never lived through, say, a, a war, I mean, how lucky are we in our little part of the world, you know, in, in our history? You know, we're very, very, you know, blessed. There's nothing to say that the world is not essentially sort of like that. So for me, even the illusion of meaning in life, and I think that a lot of us do live with the illusion of meaning in the sense that we put a narrative structure on our life. We look at our past and our present and our future and we go, well, I was there, now I'm here and this is where I'm going. I mean, it's a construct, it's a dream, you know. But the capacity to live within that dream uh, saves us from depression and gives us a sense of purpose. When that's unplugged and you lose that through losing all your, your material circumstances or your liberty or anything like that, you lose a reason to, to keep going. And uh, so even the illusion of meaning, to me, doesn't mean everything is meaningless. I think even the illusion suggests everything means something. I know that sounds kind of strange, and it's very subjective, and it's very kind of like getting into a quite a transcendental place. But could it be that... even the illusion of meaning that we have as this kind of biological accident in the middle of a cold, uncaring, infinite universe is perhaps the locus of what we understand of as God. You know?
1: The lovely detail, small detail within the play, but for me it was really significant, where Doc says, you know, he went to yoga class (laughs) and he began to levitate and they were all terrified. And I thought that's fantastic, the idea that the person who seems to be simple uh, has this grace which carries him up and frightens all the people who are there believing it could happen. I I think that's great. I think he's such a wonderful character who brings a grace to so much.
0: Yeah, and um, but for me, I suppose it's sort of that's like the little part of myself that sort of just is totally plugged into this very hopeful idea that we are all part of something amazing and uh but it's only a part of me Mm. and uh, we also brutalize him in the play but um but he comes through and if anything perhaps the knocks he get on it on his head sort of pull him into into seeing even something else you know so um he's he's a very important character
1: and and he reminded me again of of something in in your work The, the every good story needing a listener and I suppose every storyteller needing an audience. Um, Within a lot of your work, there is this, again, kind of power and grace invested in listening. You know, the the characters who listen within the plays as well as the audience who listen and watch the the givers, the storytellers and and the listeners. I'm guessing that you must be a pretty acute listener yourself to capture uh, dialogue, and language as as you do
0: well perhaps but i you know i mean i always think dialogue is 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 really a knack it's a kind of a thing that you can use, you know if you, you you tune into it and some people are just good at it you know like it's just one of those things and also in itself Dialogue is great in terms of conveying lots of very strange, conflicting thoughts because it can flow like water coming down a mountain and it can go into this little funny little place for a while and then get out of there and go into this little funny place. Very quickly, you could express a ton of mad things within a page, which is sort of the way conversations can go and they don't really have to make sense. But also as well, like listeners in plays, I think for me... In my plays, you have people who talk a lot, and then you have people who don't say very much, usually. And like, I see them in all my plays, you know, and um, like in The Weird, there's Brendan, the barman. People sometimes say, well, why doesn't he tell a story? But it just would feel wrong if, okay, here's my turn. It's just good that, you know, there's people in the play who, in a sense, are almost like a member of the audience in the play and they, we sort of sometimes experience the play kind of through them in a funny way, you need a good balance of that. If it's too neat, if everyone sort of has this many lines and this many lines, it just feels too, you know, rigid. I think it's good to have people with all these lines and someone else that has, like, 25 lines. But those actors, like, good actors will often say to you, no, I love playing this part because they're bringing... So much to it that they they have to transmit to the audience. So I, I usually have parts which are kind of like that. Did you
1: hear stories when when you were a boy? I mean, did did, did you was there anywhere you heard stories being told or, or began to pick up on that that power of the story and storytelling and language?
0: Well, I used to go and stay with my granddad down in Leitrim near Carrick and Shannon, there, Jamestown, and um, he lived on his own in a house up at Boreen, you know, when I was about 15, I would go maybe stay with him for a few days. It was like the old days, we would sit at the fire and he would tell me these stories. And uh, I only realized now that I'm older, looking back, that he was telling me stories that he had been told when he was a young boy. And so I actually realized I was connected right into something that went probably into the last century. And um, he would tell me ghost stories and stuff like that, which, uh, but to him, the funny thing was, they were never really told in a sense of being, oh, this is a scary ghost story. They were just told of something that happened to people. Mm. So it was very ordinary and spooky, doubly spooky, because they were just kind of slightly out there. But that always stayed with me. I think when I came to write something like The Weir, I sort of instinctively knew if we could just catch a bit of that. Mm. not saying I did, but people would plug into it, you know.
1: No, oh, I think you did, most definitely. You're... A terrific observer of of men in their raw and, and sometimes almost dangerous vulnerability, and the way we they um, sometimes circle around the lives of, of, of women and um, cautious and compelled and taking and trying to give and failing and all these yeah. all these uh, permutations. I wonder, for you, is it easier to write as a man to write words and the mind and dialogue? for male characters, for men, to get inside our you know our skulls and skin.
0: Yeah. I uh, yeah, like I'm I'm a man and I'm stuck in <laughs> in in my, you know, in my circumstance, you know. Um, unfortunately, I think so my plays usually have way more men than women in them, sort of struggling. But at the same time though, sometimes what that can do to a female character in the play is it makes the female characters very powerful because, as you say, the whole play turns around. Every decision that the woman makes totally upsets everything that's happening to the men um, and their, their own plans. So it's not something that I'm proud of that I don't sort of write more for women, but at the same time, I think I've probably accepted that when you're straining at the edge of your limitations, that's actually what gives you your voice, you know, because right where you're struggling, right where you can sing until that your highest possible note that's your voice, you know, if you go beyond that, I don't know if it's your voice anymore, and if you're doing it to please other people, I don't know that that's the right reason to do it either, do you know what I mean, I think that you're going to, when you see one of my plays, you're seeing it very much from a male point of view, Um, I do think men and women are different, I think we're all human beings, so we can all totally identify with each other, of course, but I think men are sort of, I mean this in a good way, slightly more stupid, you know? Like, they sort of, men's needs are very obvious. They're, they're not, co- you know, they're, they're just quite there, you know what I mean? And just, they're get, you know, they're just, and so I kind of just get that, and um, I sort of am able to make use of it. But then I suppose women, and maybe this is wrong, they seem to be able to read situations a lot better. Like a man will be struggling with something for ages, but I think that sometimes a woman can just say, well, the reason that's happening is because that person is this and that person is that, and you just haven't even seen it, you know? So for me, like the men struggling is creating the kind of stupid drama in my plays. I think if I was able to actually bring the balance of the male and female correctly... I think we might lose a lot of the drama, unfortunately, because I think the problems would get solved. So, like, I know that's a weird explanation, but in a sense, that's, I suppose, why I'm sort of not stuck, because I've accepted where I am. But the thing is, too, like, I wrote a play a few years ago which had five women and three men, and the women were aged from, like, 17 into their 80s, and they were all different classes as well, you know, and it was a play set in the, um, in the 1820s. and uh, The Veil. Yeah, and I mean, there was something wrong with that play you know what I mean there was something wrong with it interesting play certainly worth doing and I loved doing it but it didn't light those fireworks that when I just go right here's a bunch of men fucking who don't know anything suddenly the fuse gets lit so
1: and speaking of men and women and their relationships let's have a listen to another extract from The Night Alive here Amy and Tommy being Kate Stanley Brennan and Adrian Dunmar are discussing their plans to go away together.
2: What are you doing? What are you doing? Where were you? I went for a walk. You went for a walk? You're fucking mad. You were asleep. I must have been only asleep for a few minutes. I couldn't wake you. Look, here, look. Hey, did you buy drugs? No. Listen, come on, look. Look at this here. Here we go. So... We drive up to Belfast, right? we take the ferry over to Stranraar. From Stranraar, we drive down through England to Harwich. From Harwich, we, we go over to the Hook of Holland. From the Hook of Holland, we drive up through Denmark to uh, Friedrichshaven. From Friedrichshaven, we take the ferry across to Gothenburg in Sweden. From there, we, take, we drive up to Cabelscow. We take the ferry across to Haven in Finland. And bang, you there. It's that easy. That doesn't sound so easy, though, Tommy. Yeah, well, of course it's easy. Why isn't it easy? Because I don't have a passport. What? Why not? I never had one. Well, well, why didn't you tell me? I didn't think of it. When did you think of it just now? I don't know, this morning. What, this morning? What, you couldn't have thought of it two nights ago and me breaking me bollocks, digging a grave down the the wilds of fucking County Wicklow? No. Just go without me. I'm not going to go without you God, Don't be ridiculous. Look, you don't need a passport for the ferry. Someone's bound to want to check somewhere. Yeah, but you can stay in the back of the van. You should just go on your own. Don't be. I'm not going to call me on, come on. Why not? What? Why not? Because we're... Because we're... I did it. I did it. Look, 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 look! I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. What kind of a person is thinking I'm all right? It might have been your problem in the first place, but you know it's too late for that now, isn't it? I'll see you, okay. Look, where are you going to go? You don't have a passport. Oh, you want to go to Finland? Well, then go to Finland. No one's stopping you. Look, look, we get your passport. We get your passport. Look, how, how hard can it be? All right. Well, how long is it going to take? A couple. of, Why the panic? A couple of days. It's not going to work, Tommy. Why is it not going to work? It's just not going to work. What's not going to work? Everything. The oh, fuck all that. We say how it works, okay? We did what we had to do. And maybe that's. And this is. I love you, Amy, okay? I love you, okay? You don't even know me, Tommy. Oh, I do know you. I do. I've always known you. I've always known you. You're just lonely me lonely I'm not lonely Tommy I'm gonna go okay look look what do you think I'm just some kind of a fool who doesn't know what's going on in his own head what do you think I don't fucking know what's going on I know what's going on here look here take this don't give me any money Tommy look take it no take it no why not because there's no point what do you mean there's no point there's no point don't you do that don't you fucking do that just leave me the fuck alone will you Amy goodbye Tommy
1: Kate Stanley Brennan and Adrian Dunbar there as Amy and Tommy in The Night Alive by Conor McPherson. <laughs> it was almost a, yeah, I love you, says the man. Goodbye, says the woman. There it is. Um, uh, Conor, do you enjoy directing? I mean, you, you, you seem to relish uh, working with actors. And I was very struck by the fact that you dedicated the second volume of your plays for the actors. Rare to see that you obviously enjoy the whole business of theater as well as as the writing
0: well that's where it's at you know I mean writing is a play is really only half the half the journey you know you've only you're still at the bottom of the mountain when you've written the play and uh, you know then you're, you're into a whole other journey and um, the actors bring it to life and I, I love that I mean to me when you're in rehearsals it's a way of putting some order on the chaos of life you know it's a collaborative thing and it's a a wonderfully socially interactive process. It's um, always very life-affirming. I I love it.
1: Did you ever consider giving this to anybody else to direct, this particular play?
0: No. It's always you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but like when I started writing plays, I was about like 17 or 18, and when I was doing them in the the drama society in college, I didn't know anybody who directed, so I just had to do it. It was a little lunchtime play, Mm. just did it. And then you know, do the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So it was just doing it. There was never a question of do you need someone else to direct it. I was just able to do it, so I just did it. And through the years, then once or twice, I've I've worked with another director who directed a couple of my uh, plays. My most successful play was directed by somebody else. What does that say? That's but um, weird. Yeah. so um, and also as well, to be honest with you, it's like if theatres don't say to me we think someone else should direct this, then I'm not going to rock the boat, you know. So I'll just keep going.
1: Is there a difference, any perceptible difference in the responses of audiences here in Ireland and in London or New York? Do you notice anything? Do they all get the humour, for instance, in the work
0: in the same way? They do get the humour, but they laugh at different things in different ways. I think um, laughter in the theatre is uh, very interesting because it's quite complex. It's, uh, people laugh Yes, when there's a funny line, but they also laugh as a group to sort of say to the, to the performance, we understand this, or we understand that the story has taken a turn, or we recognise something. One example I always remember is in my play, Shining City, Um, in other countries, there was a line in it, um, someone comes in the door and they go, God, the parking around here is horrendous, isn't it? And, you know, Nothing in London, nothing... When say that in Dublin, bang, <laughs> whole place just went, you know, yes, it is, you know. But um, the people laugh just at little tiny, little simple recognition things like that. I find in Ireland, audiences are way more raucous. They not only will laugh at everything, but also they'll burst into applause in the middle of the, the play if something happens. Um, that kind of thing is happens so they're very very lively but you hear that like even musicians that tour around they always say audience in Ireland is very alive and it is you know I think in London they can be slightly reverent New York as well sometimes a bit reverent or a bit like they think you're from some sort of Celtic you know whiz whiz (laughs) wise thing you know and you're not but they're like they're like really you know what you know but um (laughs) but they they pretty soon figure out that it's it's you know it doesn't have to be like that either but um so, yeah, I have noticed that. And I remember when we did, like, what you are talking about, the end of The Night Alive, which seems to maybe perhaps go into another place completely, I was stuck coming down the stairs at the Donmar Warehouse after one of the first performances, and I really heard the Anglo-Saxon mind in front of me as people complained bitterly about the ending. don't I mean, it was so good up to that point, and then, oh, my God, she just... I mean, it just... It was awful, you know? Whereas here, when people... At the end of the play, they're just going, oh, yeah, no, that's... They totally just seem to understand. And with working with actors in different countries is very interesting too, because in America, working with actors, America as a culture, they reward courage, success, achievement. Here we find courage, success and achievement very strange and sort of, <laughs> when something works, we don't quite, you know, and we're very, oh, I don't know, you know, but. Um, so actors over there, the characters that will be in my plays, who are, you know, losers for the most part, you know, they find it very hard to get into, <laughs> to get into playing those roles. You like to so, say, so, why doesn't he talk, just talk to his wife and tell her, <laughs> tell her he loves her, you know? And for an Irish actor, like, you like no, he can't tell his wife he loves her. That's it, you know. <laughs> so, um, so there's just all those little cultural nuances. But happily, you know, on the whole they just seem to seem to, to work in different places, yeah.
1: Is there a particular gratification in, in having this play, for example, on here at the Dublin Theatre Festival, that rounding of of.
0: There is, there is, but at the same time, I mean, it's lovely because you really, you know that the audience, the minute they see these characters, they know who they are. So within seconds, they're with it. Um, whereas in other countries, they're like, what is this? This is horrible, you know? But here, they're just like, yep, but also at the same time there's something about doing your work at home in your hometown which is scary because you know you want it to you know you don't want it to look like you you're coming you've, you know you've you've messed it up or that you know you feel the pressure for sure it's complicated like life <laughs> <laughs> we have time for
1: a few questions
3: Hi, I just wanted to say you shouldn't feel pressure at home because everyone I know adored it for a start. We really enjoyed the play. But I also wanted to say as a woman that I really appreciated the way you highlighted with a light hand the relationship between Tommy and Amy, the prostitute, that the, his ability to completely wipe out the reality was uh, very nicely... <laughs>
0: Nicely depicted. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much. Um, can you turn off the editor in your head
2: when you're writing the first draft? And um, do you have a method? And has that evolved over time? Or kind of how do you approach? Or what kind of what kind of a process is it for you?
0: Well, I think that's a good question. In terms of can you turn off the editor? I think for me, when I'm writing a first draft, I pretend that I'm not writing anything. I just will pre- just pretend that I'm making notes, because you take the pressure off yourself. You go, these are this is just notes for a play. It's not a play. I'm not writing a play. I'm just writing little ideas, you know. You know, so that way you sort of keep the pressure off, and just do it. In, I always just do it in little little chunks, you know. And uh, that way, I sort of fool myself that I don't have to. It doesn't have to be good. And then when you've got enough of that, you can then come back as the editor and sort of go, "Look at this. This is terrible. What are we going to do?" But the first person that did all that other stuff. They did all the hard stuff. They're gone. And now you can, start, you can actually spend days in the office sorting through the mess and putting a bit of a shape on it. So that's kind of how I approach it. I usually write longhand, just in little pads and things like that. I don't even... Because even if I was to do it on the computer, to me that's too much like you're actually trying to write a play, which is a disaster. You shouldn't think like that. So, um, well, for me anyway. So that's how I go through it. It's messy, but... That's how I do it. Hmm. You know, you were speaking about that first, and trying to get rid of the editor for that first draft. And when you get that, that much done, does sometimes the editor come in and just say, okay, abandon ship, it, what you thought was there, and you discover that, it, that it's not, and then you just kind of leave it behind? Yeah, sometimes. Like, I've done, I've done whole plays, which I've left behind, yeah. And you don't know what's wrong. But it's just, so, the, the little fire is just not in it. I, and you can't explain it so it's it's like i was saying like i think the, the real magic of a play is really in it's in between the lines it's something it's something bigger than the play it's not the play if you read the script i think someone could read the script of the night alive and go i don't know <laughs> what that's about but when you see it in three dimensions there's something else happening so it's about sensing that that's in there and when you have that sense there's something here then you know also as well like getting your friends to read it that you trust and who can be honest with you people won't be honest with you they'll say yeah no it's really great you know because they don't want to say and you have to be prepared to take it if they say well actually I didn't understand it or you know so it's fraught with all of that but um, you have to have a kind of mad belief that it's going to there's something there you have to have some idea in some way that this is kind of worth it And if you can just keep that alive, 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 alive all the way, hopefully something will live, you know.
1: Yeah, the thing that interests me most in the play, watching it and then also reading your introduction and hearing you talk is this issue of the illogic and the inconsistency that you spoke about. That was all the time an issue as as watching the play last night and as you know still in my mind it's still alive because of those kind of slippages and inconsistencies as a work of art it's so interesting that issue of inconsistency well done it's brilliant
0: well thank you very much yes like it's my wife is a painter you know and she's a lovely painter, but I remember one time she did a, a painting, you know, and it was this kind of mark on it, which is just like a, like almost like a, like she dropped some paint on it, you know? And I said, you need to clean that up? And she said, no, well, that just happened. And she said, but it sort of needs it. And it's like, you know, so there's something in that. There's something, there's another thing to come back to Strindberg. He felt that the, the role of random events in the creation of art, like if you wrote, say, a scene on Tuesday, But what if you didn't write it that day, you wrote it on Wednesday? Would it be the same? It's impossible to know. It's absolutely impossible to know. And also as well, if someone said to me, well, I probably could remember with with this play because it's recent, but say if someone said to me, Connor, we've lost every single copy of The Seafarer, you know, a play that I did, you know, whatever, 10 years ago, whatever, can you write it again? I just simply wouldn't be able to. I'm not that person. My world is not that world. I might be sort of able to remember the lines, but it wouldn't be coming from that place. So all those little things, like there's no, there's no real, there's no structured answer to any of it. It's all a bit mad in a good way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But you've got an imprimatur to be inconsistent. It's a good thing. <laughs> That's
0: it. Yeah. One more. Um, you've already talked about um, your knack for dialogue, but how do you know when when a line is unnecessary, when it can just be said with a, with a look or a gesture or a movement across the stage, do you know that in rehearsal or does that come across you know, when you're writing, when you're editing? I think usually you're trying to get it down as much as you can, pare it back as much as you can. Sometimes you have a suspicion that something's unnecessary, but then yeah, when you're in rehearsal, you know immediately, like immediately. And uh, the problem is if you take those lines into rehearsal, Actors are programmed to fight for every line they have. And you're like saying, but we've already said this. We've already done it. And they go, no, I think my character really, you know, needs it. And you find yourself fighting to cut your own lines out, you know. So, yeah, but it does usually becomes pretty, apparent pretty fast. And I love actors who just say, yeah, we don't need that. But it's rare. They always think you need everything. Directing, like writing, like maybe singing, like acting and all that, it's, I think directing is also instinctive. I think you are born with being able to direct or not. I think you can possibly learn it or possibly learn aspects of it, like managing people and design and all that kind of stuff. But that eye of just going, the balance feels wrong, the rhythm feels wrong, you need to come downstage now and she needs to stay where she is, all of that is like... Having a musical ear, you, it's a sense of balance, which I think you sort of have to be born with. So I think being a playwright who also directs, usually when I hear those bum notes, they've got to go, or I'll go mad, like I'll go crazy, if it's still there on opening night, you know. And I often do.
1: Connor, thank you so much for being our guest and thanks to you our audience we're back here in a fortnight in the project for a program on the art of sound in theater and lots of great soundscapes in this year's theater festival including the night alive And also, some of you are off to the theater so enjoy it and thanks a lot thank you
0: That interview between Vincent Woods and playwright Conor McPherson was recorded in the Project Arts Centre as part of the Dublin
1: Theatre Festival.